everybody. It is great to be here one more time today. And my name is Gary Fowler, and I'm the CEO, President, and Founder of GSD Get Shit Done Venture Studios, a premier AI and quantum venture studio located in the heart of Silicon Valley. I'm a serial entrepreneur. I've been involved in 17 startups and several unicorns. Love artificial intelligence quantum computing, but I have an extremely, extremely special guest today. You know, when I was in graduate school, I had a chance to be able to sell some of the first apples, the Apple IIs, the Apple IIcs, Macintoshes, and it's a great privilege today to speak to Daniel Kotke. Daniel is um, world-renowned as one of the original team members of Apple. He went to school with Steve Jobs at Reed College. He went to India with Steve Jobs. Uh, but in his own right, I mean, he, he developed a passion for computing, which we're going to talk about from some of his assembly days and, and uh, his time um, at Apple. And I'd like to bring him on board. Hi, Daniel. How are you doing today? All right. Hey, it's good to see you. You know, you, hey, how in the world did you go from Bronxville to Reed College? Like, what, what was that all about? Did you like wake up one day and say, I'm going to go? Or was it a scholarship? Or what happened? Uh, I had never heard of Reed, but my high school guidance counselor knew about Reed. And um, I had a national merit scholarship. So I was in a good position to go wherever I wanted. And I decided I wanted to go to Boston because I had friends in Boston at Boston University. I didn't want to go to MIT. I thought I wanted to go to Harvard because I liked the architecture, uh, but I wasn't admitted. And guess, and, and the person who, from my class, who was admitted to Harvard, his father had been to Harvard, that explains a lot. And um, anyways, Reed had rolling admissions until the spring. And so I, I got a late admission to Reed and uh, it worked out well for me. How was it out there? What was it really like when you got started out there at Reed College? Was it was it what, what kind of uh, environment? I know there was a lot of things happen in the U.S. at the time, but what was the environment like? Was it open thinking? Was it was it how did it feel? Well, Reed had been a hotbed of student activism during the Vietnam War in the late 60s, but I didn't know any of that. Um, it was just a kind of a normal collegiate, nice campus, Tudor Gothic buildings, um, big lawns. Uh, right. I made a good friend the very first day there. And um, um, his name is Lawrence, tall, skinny guy with long hair and uh, wire rim glasses like me. So he and I bonded immediately. And I ran into Lawrence uh, a couple weeks later, and he said, Daniel, you ought to come over to my dorm and meet this guy, Steve Jobs. He's interesting. Yeah. True story. <laughs> so I went over to the dorm, the old dorm block, and uh, Steve was had a group of people in his room. He didn't have much stuff at all, but he did have a large, expensive uh, TIAC reel-to-reel tape deck, and he was very proud of his hours of bootleg Bob Dylan. Uh, <laughs> turns out, 
to find out many years later, it was Waz who was going to Berkeley, who knew the record store where you could get the bootleg copies of Dylan. And that and so it was actually Waz who got Steve the Dylan. Really interesting. So how did it, did you develop, did you like him right away? What was the relationship like? How did you develop that relationship with him? Uh, I would say, um, well, Reed was a small enough campus that you, if you were just walking around, you would run into everybody. There was only 200 freshman students. Uh, I was not in any classes with Steve. The first thing I, after that one day I met him, I think the first topic that was of mutual interest was vegetarianism. Uh, there was a table in the student union where they were giving away copies of Vegetarian Times magazine, which I had never, I had never been exposed to that stuff. Mm -hmm. And, and then I got a copy of Zen Macrobiotics, the George Osawa book about brown rice. Mm -hmm. And um, for whatever reason, Steve and I got talking about diet and it was interesting to both of us. And then not so long after that, the Hare Krishnas were on campus and off and invited us to come to their Sunday night love feast at the Krishna temple. Which how, was how is that? Well, um, I would say you can imagine Steve Jobs at a Hare Krishna temple playing the little bells and chanting Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, which is an amusing thought. Uh, I often I think about that. That was what pretty improbable. But was he nice? Was he nice, Daniel? Was he nice to be around? Was he pleasant? Yeah. No, he was fine. He was shy. I was more outgoing. Um, uh, that's amazing. So you did that. So, you know, you're both had your graduates together in 1972, right? And then in what, in 74, you guys went to India. You took a trip to India, if I re recall, correct? Yes. Well, and the way that came about, what really launched my friendship with Steve is, so we were discussing Zen macrobiotics and, um, and then the next thing that happened was I was in the Reed College bookstore and there's this book that had just come out called Be Here Now, very unusual book. It fit my budget because it was $3. And uh, I, I read it and it was such a fascinating book because it was new and fresh and it was about this guru, Maharaji, also known as Neem Karoli Baba, who was st still active in India and so I was carrying that book around campus and I must have run into Steve and was telling him about it. And I probably loaned it to him. And that book sparked our mutual interest in spiritual topics, to put it broadly. And uh, so then the next thing that happened was I went around asking people, well, this I was just, I, I was just so fascinated by that book. Uh, and I, and I remember asking people, what should I read next? Mm -hmm. And a book that was suggested was autobiography of a yogi. And so Steve and I both read that. And at that point we're hooked. Hooked well, on. And so you do this trip, right? And the, it was almost deserted when you went over to this, this, um, 
Noreen Coroli Ashram's place. It was deserted, yeah. right? And then you guys took like some track of, from what I read, right, of some riverbed, and you were traveling up some river. What was that all about? I would just say uh, Steve was fine to travel with. I had really no complaints traveling with him. He was adventurous and so was I, but he was, um, um, what's the right word? He was secretive, which See? I didn't even really realize. Mm -hmm. And so Steve, so uh, Robert Friedland, is a person you can look up on Wikipedia. He was the student body president and he was very charismatic. And, and we had found out at some point that he was actually in the Be Here Now book, not by name, but he, like the, he was in that group of people in India, the group wow, of devotees. that's amazing. Sorry, that's turn this off. Anyway, um, and it was Robert who, uh, told us that the Kumbh Mela was in the summer of 74 and we really should go. He was the one who encouraged us to go. Uh, but then um, somehow Steve, you know, Steve would just find things out and not tell me how he knew. And so we had gone to Kenshi. Um, someone told Steve we should go to Harakan Baba's ashram and gave him directions. And I don't know who that was. Uh, and uh, Steve also connected, he got to India before I did. He connected with Larry Brilliant who worked for the World Health Organization, has written a book now called Sometimes Brilliant. He's an epidemiologist. I never knew that Steve, Steve never told me these things. Really, and that's interesting. And it is. you're doing all these enlightening things and he's, he's got these other things. The other he had his own, he had his own secret agenda from the very, from the very beginning, huh. uh, which I was okay with. The one thing that happened that was a little bit strange is we had gotten to Kenshi. It was deserted, as you said. And after a day or two, Steve goes, well, I'm going to leave for three days. Please wait for me here. <laughs> he didn't want to tell me where he was going. Uh -huh. um, and I am a person who is, uh, I always carry books. I had a whole stack of books that I was carrying with me. I could give you titles if you're interested, but uh, I would say probably Alan Watts was one of my favorite. I had a few titles by him. Anyway, so Steve wanted to just go away for three days and not tell me. I was said, okay, fine, I'll just hang out here. I'll do my meditations and read these books. He comes back after three days, not a word about where he went or why. And I- yeah, That's unusual. <laughs> I, well, it was unusual, but I didn't really think about it at the time. And, and believe it or not, Decades later, 30, 40 years later, I was talking with Alan Deutschman, who wrote a couple of books about Apple, and he had interviewed Steve and interviewed many other people. And he said, oh, yeah, that must have been the time Steve went to Almora. And I said, what? How did you know that? I don't know how he knew that. But if you look up Almora and Cranks Ridge, it was not far from Kenshi. 
and Evans Wentz lived there, and Lama Govinda lived there. And Lama Govinda was one of the authors we were reading, Way of the White Clouds. Lama Govinda wrote uh, Foundations of Tibetan Buddhism. Interesting. Well, so you did, so you ended up uh, leaving Reed College and you went to Columbia University in 1976, I recall. And, yes. and then what happened, this whole thing, there was a call computer, I think was the name of the group that he asked you to come out and part-time assemble boards, correct? Uh, well, it's more like uh, I stayed in touch with Steve. We used to write postcards to each other and, and phone calls once in a while. And at some point in the spring of 76, I was at Columbia and he said he was doing this computer thing project. And I said, do you need help? And he said, yes. So I said, all right, I'll see you in June. That was how that started. Wow, that now that was was that the beginning of Apple? Was Waz there then? Well, Waz had a full time job at Hewlett Packard. Mm -hmm. Did not have any intention of quitting. Waz was not an entrepreneur. Was not interested in starting the company. Um, but he had created the Apple One in seventy five, and by early seventy six. The, the the legendary story was they was had demoed it at Homebrew Computer Club and Paul Terrell, the owner of the bite shop, was in the audience and connected with Steve Jobs after the show and said, let's talk. Maybe I'll place an order. And he ended up placing an order for 50 Apple Ones. Um at $500 each, that's $25,000. Mm -hmm. Okay. This is 1976. So $25,000 then is like $120,000 now. So that was a very unusual event for a garage startup. Wow, that's amazing. So that's, yeah. where, that's where it got started. And they that, never Yeah, that was really the launch event for Apple. And that was really, but they were without the cases. They were just the boards, right? I mean, they weren't even uh, cases at that point. And that's the fascinating story, which is alluded to in one of the movies, which I have still not get, gotten a clear answer from Paul Terrell. Because uh, Paul, in Paul's mind, um, he was going to, it wasn't a hobby hobbyist thing. It was a, a, a fully functional thing, but... In Steve Jobs' mind, no, it was just a circuit board. But you still needed a power supply, mm -hmm. uh, which typically you would have bought the transformers and wired it up. So you'd have to know electronics. And you needed a keyboard, and the keyboard needed a particular cable, which didn't come with the keyboard. So where was the cable supposed to come from? Um, I've asked Paul this question, and I never knew. Huh, interesting. So you did that, and then you go back to Columbia University, right? And then yes. once you graduate from Columbia University, you came back to Apple as a full-time employee. Right. You ended up, at the time, you moved in with Steve Jobs and his girlfriend, Chrisanne Brennan, correct? You have done your homework. Yes. How was that? Like, was he, like, normal to you then? Was he acting, yeah. was he different, or... How did he end? Well, <clears throat> Steve was very focused and driven and, and very ambitious. And 
to be honest, in my early friendship with him, I never saw his burning ambition. He really had a burning ambition. And, um, and he never had ever talked about the Blue Box Project. Like he never said a word about it, which is in retrospect, bizarre. Wow, that is amazing. Well, I'll tell you, talk about compartmentalization of knowledge. That's like... <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, no, it was a happy time. I was, I had zero experience in electronics, so it was uh, exciting for me. I knew I would be good at it. I was a math whiz in high school, so I knew I would could learn the computer science. I didn't really know anything about electronics, but I didn't have to. I wasn't designing anything. I was a technician, so I could just follow instructions and, and test, do testing and fixing things. That's it. And so when you spent an additional eight years, you know, you were debugging the Apple II, right? And I, I was very good at debugging the Apple II. I basically memorized the whole schematic. I didn't know how chips worked, but I knew about inputs and outputs. <laughs> and if the output didn't look right, you would pull the pit because all the chips were socketed. So it was kind of easy to fix stuff. If the output didn't look right, you pulled the chip, lift the pin, plug it back in, and see if it looks right then. And if it did, then there was a problem on the output side. Otherwise, it was on the input side. Interesting. And then you did the app. I remember the Apple threes, by the way. And you did the Apple, the Macintosh prototype. And as you're going down through, you know, uh, working on that, you worked on the design of the keyboard. Did you feel, Daniel, could you tell, was Steve that good at innovation? Did he did he talk to you about those things? Did you? I'm trying to figure out how innovators are made. Is it because it's a kind of nature thing or over time you start to just nurture yourself to the point you start to innovate like crazy? What, what was that spirit in Apple like then? Uh, well, that's a good way to put it. I, I think it's just a mixture of many things. Um, but, uh, what Steve had in his pocket, so to speak, he had a burning ambition. He was very smart, but he had was, yeah. <laughs> was, was the secret ingredient because was, was just a completely brilliant guy. He created the Apple one all by himself, both the hardware and, and he wrote the basic interpreter and, uh, now, Steve Jobs gets credit for the Apple One case and the switching power supply. And um, I think you would say the expansion slots. Well, that was not so innovative. Most computers had expansion slots. Um, but the really amazing thing is that by the time we were building the Apple One, in the summer of 76, Waz was already finishing the design of the Apple II. Wow, that's- Finishing it. That's extremely unusual. And, and go ahead. No, you're going down through it. I mean, it's just like, it's amazing because well, changing at this point and Waz is changing it, right? I mean, he's down there, just an incredible about, you know, incredible capability to see things in the future and, and put it together. And 
you know, as you're going down through this, I remember, by, because by the way, I was selling those Apple IIs to educational institutions at that time, right? right? Graduate school and then shortly after. But when you went down through and did it, I mean, the popularity just started going through the roof and then clones like the Franklin Ace 1000 came out. You know, uh, I you could see the revolution. But when you were there and you started to build the Macintosh, right, which is a totally different deal, how was that? I mean, was Steve involved in that project with you? Was he involved in the project? Was it? Because I know in the movies it's portrayed in one way, but what was it really like when you were doing? Because Macintosh was like incredible. I was uh, very fortunate to have her. I was a technician trying to get promoted to be an engineer, and. And Apple, the management at Apple was not interested in making me an engineer at all. I was very frustrated. I was taking night classes at Stanford. Anyway, I heard about the famous trip to Xerox Park. Interesting, interesting. And uh, let's see, I can't quite remember the story of how that trip came about, who Adele Goldberg uh, was the host of that program at Xerox Park. She's the one, I'm not sure she was in favor of that visit. And mm -hmm. I can't remember the politics. Apple was trading Xerox Parks for something in exchange for, for letting, opening the kimono, so to speak, letting these Apple engineers into their development lab. That's a very unusual event. Anyway, um, I didn't, you know, I never studied computer science, so I had no idea. I had no idea what Xerox was you doing. You wanted to do it, though. That's an amazing thing. You were taking courses. You were retraining yourself to do it. I mean, it's like, and you got the aptitude to be able to move into an engineering role. So a great opportunity. And well, anyway, just let me finish this. Let me finish this uh, thought. So that trip, there were about 15 of us from Apple. Mm -hmm. who went to Xerox Park for an afternoon and got a demo of the Alto. The Alto was many years old at that point. The Alto project had started like in 71. It was like five years old, six mm -hmm. years old. Mm -hmm. um, and that was the keyboard and mouse, the Windows user interface with the mouse pointing device, opening up Windows, typing text in a window, right? The moment you saw all of that, it's like, well, that is the future. You don't have to be a genius to see that that is the future. Mm -hmm. And the Alto was like a $50,000 box of hardware. Mm -hmm. It was never going to be a com consumer device, although Xerox did come out with the Star years later. Mm -hmm. at more than 10, it was $20,000. So it was not expected to sell well, and it didn't. Anyway... So the next thing that happened was the Lisa project started, okay? And the Lisa project, um, Apple at this point had a lot of money, so they hired a bunch of older engineers. They hired engineers from HP and Xerox and SRI. And they started from scratch building a consumer version of the Alto. Mm -hmm. That was the goal, and they basically did a pretty good job of it, but. When the Lisa came out in 82, the price tag was $10,000. I so remember that. It was a crazy. That was so, so expensive. 
it was a kind of a more of a proof of concept than anything. Um, and it didn't sell well, although it did work. Uh, there was a big disappointment with the Lisa because the hard drive that was planned didn't work. That was called the widget. And the high density floppy did not work right either. Both of those were big disappointments at Apple. Mm -hmm. uh, but so anyway, back to the Macintosh. The Macintosh was purely the innovative uh, Skunk Works project of Jeff Raskin. And Jeff is, you could do a whole show about Jeff Raskin. Um, I was pretty good friends with Jeff. Jeff used to come over to the house that Steve and I lived in. Mm -hmm. And uh, Jeff was a Renaissance man, many, many interests, brilliant man. And he had compiled over a couple of years a couple of th uh, three-inch binders that he called the Macintosh papers. And it was just a whole series of articles, Xeroxed articles, about the win Doug Engelbart's mouse and window interface. And it was Jeff's vision to make a $1,000 consumer graphical input device computer that you could imagine sitting on the kitchen countertop when you look up your recipes okay because nobody was doing we were there was no internet there was no um uh well what am i thinking of i don't know uh the, we yeah, everybody could understand that the computer was going to be in the kitchen on the countertop and you were going to interact with it there was no web is what i'm saying there was yeah. no no browsing there was no Email existed, but we didn't have email at Apple. Mm -hmm. It was only at big companies that had a T1 line and an internet connection. So that was. Hey. So when you, Daniel, I had a question for you. When you would have, when you were living with Steve Jobs, what kind of conversations would you have? Conversations about technology. What kind of conversations would would was he like normal in terms of the conversation? Was it always about business? Was did you ever talk about? you know, the good books or a good movie? What, what were the conversations like? What was oh, uh, we talked about many things. Uh, we both had wide ranging interests in literature, in reading things. Um, uh, I can remember discussing Tom Robbins with Steve. Even Cowgirls Get the Blues. Yeah, yeah. We read that at the same time. Steve and I shared books all the time. Um, uh, I could list many titles, but Carlos Castaneda, I remember yeah. discussing that with Steve. That was actually at Reed College. Uh, Secret Life of Plants. Now that was on the science side. Mm -hmm. And that was fascinating. Um, but mostly, okay, and then we get to the subject of psychedelics, which Steve and I had both had psychedelics in high school. Mm -hmm. But once you start reading about chakras mm -hmm. and um, the aura of your body and all those kind of topics, psychedelics is like a booster rocket if you're interested in those topics. And who wouldn't be, really? So Steve and I, we're, um, we just had wide-ranging discussions about all kinds of things. Was he a good friend, Daniel? I mean, to take apart the stuff with the At stuff. the time, I thought he was a good friend. Uh, as years went by, 
the time that I found out that, that, um, you know, the, 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 I never got a stock option at Apple. So I was at Apple for eight years. At the time I left, all I had was my little employee stock option. And everyone else had become a millionaire. So it was not such a happy time for me. But it, another 10 years went by before I heard the story that my, my boss, Rod Holt, had approached Steve about just giving me some stock. And Steve said, fine, zero. Wrong hand, zero. Well, that, that's amazing. But didn't Waz was, he gave you some of his shares, correct? Yeah, he did. Waz was just a super generous guy. I wasn't the only person. He gave uh, gifts of stock to half a dozen of us who were not engineers. Well, that wow. was, that was, that's great. That's interesting. So you were friends with them. You lived with them. You went to India with them. You went to college with them. And then when it comes time for the options, he wasn't, uh, he didn't give you anything. It's kind of an enduring mystery as far as I'm concerned. And um, what's currently happening now, surprising to say, is a psychic woman was referred to me by a mutual friend. And she tells me that she's in, she's channeling Steve. And Steve wants to talk to me. <laughs> hey, you know, I used to say, well, maybe that's out of the norm. But, you know, the more you start to learn about life and what we don't know, we don't know what we don't know. Who knows? Right. It's interesting. That would be a show of what he said, what he says to you. That could be another show. <laughs> all I could, you know, the thing. So I'm trying to get I'm trying to get to write a memoir. I realized um, so. Uh, do you know the name Jonathan Rotenberg? No. Mm -hmm. He at, at age 18 in Boston, he was the founder of the Macintosh user group. Or maybe it was an Apple user group. Mm -hmm. And Jobs and Waz both had come to give a talk for his user group in Boston. Maybe there was a conference going on. And Jonathan Rotenberg uh, found Steve backstage meditating just before his remarks on stage. And he said it changed his life, made him a Buddhist. And John Rotenberg wrote a, a book called Steve Jobs, My Buddhist Teacher. Interesting. interesting. Which should make you roll your eyes. Oh, my God. That's interesting. So anyway, I had lunch with him and he gave me a draft of his book. I thought it was a ridiculous title he needs, and he never even published it. Maybe I think he should publish it because it read okay. And then I was taking my shower that day and thinking, well, actually, I'm the world expert on Steve's Buddhist roots uh, because I was the person buying the books and sharing them with him. And uh, so so the, that's the idea that I'm kind of aiming towards is um, not just our trip to India because nothing much happened on our trip to India. But um, the dozens of books that Steve and I had read together uh, is it is of interest to the world. Yeah, I think it's great. I mean, Daniel, I know because you haven't really talked. I mean, in the past, I remember speaking to my friend Kevin about it. You didn't really talk much about it, right? You were kind of quiet about things for a while. And um, wasn't there the Time Magazine, if I remember correctly, they were writing an article about Steve, right? And they asked you about Chris Ann Brennan. And you said, and if, correct me if I'm wrong. You said he has a daughter, right, Lisa, 
Right. And he got upset, right? Pissed off because you said that, but I don't understand why, to be honest with you. <laughs> if you got a kid, you got a kid. And I'm not sure what there's to be ashamed of or mad about. Right. Uh, I agree. I, and well, you know, I, I, Steve was my best friend at the time. I would not have wanted to expose his secret details to anyone. But what I said to the guy from Time Magazine was, well, that's, I was asked if Steve had a daughter named Lisa. And I said, well, that's not a secret. <laughs> well, it wasn't a secret to you. You knew the deal, right? And they, Steve, was, Steve was denying to reporters that he had a child, which is so stupid. What was he thinking? I have no idea. You know, that is unusual, Daniel. Seriously. And, um, you know, Chris was, he had a good relationship with Chris Ann in high school. Mm -hmm. But then once Apple started, he didn't want a girlfriend. And, um, you know, maybe he shouldn't have slept with her. But... Mm -hmm. Um, he just was not psychologically prepared to be a father. And, um, but uh, should have stepped up. Well, you got to step up, right? I mean, that's I don't know. I was loyal to Steve. And I, um, uh, when Steve's in the paternity suit, when Steve's lawyers asked me if I would be willing to testify that I never saw Steve and Chris Ann in bed together. I said, sure, I, that's the truth. I never saw them in bed together. Anyway. That's wild. And so did, you, did he spend time with her? Were you, were you around him when he spent time with uh, Lisa? Was she around at that time? <laughs> no, no Steve, Steve was not kind to Chris Ann. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and basically just kind of blew her off. And said, it's not my child, not my child. I, I'm not interested. And so she went back up to the all one farm in Oregon. Where, where in 1975, Steve and I had been managing the apple harvest. That's kind of where the apple came from. Mm -hmm. We were fasting on apples. It was a fruitarian diet experiment. Anyway, that's where Lisa was born. I didn't know till many years later, Steve had actually gone up to the farm and helped name Lisa. So he wasn't really un, uninvolved. He was involved, but I didn't know that. Interesting. Well, that follows suit with what you said about when he took that three-day journey and he didn't tell you anything about it, right? And yeah, he, he was that. a secretive guy, but I don't know. That's not a character. It's not a character flaw. It's just, I don't know. I'm a different some people, kind of person. Some people are like that. How was it then once that happened with that Time article? Did you talk to him ever again, Daniel? Did he talk to you or what was it just, did everything get shut off or what? what After, happened? so that Time magazine um, debacle happened in late, nine, late 82. Mm-hmm. And uh, Steve was furious at me and basically didn't talk to me for another 15 years. And then uh, what happened after those 15 years? Did you, did you resurrect a relationship with him or was it just cordial? Um, actually, what happened in, well, so he had, a, he had his surgery. He had a liver transplant. That was in the 2005 timeframe. Mm -hmm. Years went by. 
2009, he was very much in touch with his mortality. He knew mm -hmm. he, right. I don't think he, he thought he, he thought the doctors would keep him alive. But anyway, I get a 7 a.m. call from him on a weekday in 2009 that, you know, I, I took as a kind of a reconciliation, but he didn't apologize for anything. He just called me up and said, life's crazy. Hope you're doing well. You know, that kind of a thing. Wow, that's amazing. And and um, so, you know, if you look back at it, you've had, I mean, the, the journey. So after Apple, right, as you're going through technology, uh, you're working in technology companies. How was it after Apple? I mean, it just, did you keep that spirit, that that same spirit in your mind? Or how how is it as you're going from company to company? How do you keep that same kind of uh, like, there was magic, right, that happened at that point. I, well, you know, I was a self-taught engineer. Mm -hmm. And so after eight years at Apple, I was still just learning the whole field of because because the field of computer science was moving so fast. And I thought I wanted to be a IC designer. I was into VLSI and wow. standard cell. I wanted to be a chip architect, right? And um, what happened, let's see. So um, I worked for three years on the Mac project. Through the summer of 84, um, all of us on the Mac project were, were going to lots of conferences demoing the Mac, which was hugely fun and exciting because usually engineers don't get to go demo their own project products, mm -hmm. right? So Apple you know, sent us to conferences and that was really satisfying. But by the end of 84, I was just ready for a break. I was 30 years old. I had spent all my twenties working at Apple. Mm -hmm. So I got my backpack and I went to Europe for four months and I traveled around Europe, which I highly recommend. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and then as soon as I got back, um, I had gone on a leave of absence from Apple, but I started getting consulting work immediately. So I had no reason to go back to a full-time job. And so for the next 10 years, I did consulting for a whole series of startup companies, um, which was all fun. I got into fourth. There was a custom fourth chip that was very exciting, the 68HC11. Uh, and then by the, by the early 90s, my son was born in 1990, and that was a big um, moment of thinking, well, if I'm ever going to invent something and start a company, I should do it now. So I, I came up with a, um, <clears throat> I called it Polestar. It was a polling, it was a wireless polling system for classrooms or for political voting. Mm -hmm. I never could, I, the, the hardware worked, the product worked, but I was not really, uh, wrong hand. I was not, in the entrepreneur mindset. I was in, in the engineer inventor mindset. Yep. Anyway, I didn't actually become an entrepreneur till the 2007 timeframe. I was a co-founder of Fast Movie, which was uh, very much like YouTube. And mm -hmm. I had a co-founder who, who knew the codex really well. Divix mm -hmm. codec is what we were using. YouTube was still, YouTube had already started and was being run out of a garage. 
And we had we compared pretty well with YouTube. We were doing full um, full resolution video, unlimited length. Uh, wow. Using Apple's well, Apple had come out with uh, their uh, iMovie, iDVD products. So anyway, um, <clears throat> 2007 and eight, I was making v VC presentations, and that's kind of what made me into an entrepreneur. Um, which I recommend. <laughs> well, you know, going down through it, Daniel, so I, we have an audience all over the world, a lot of aspiring entrepreneurs. They have a dream of Silicon Valley. I mean, you've lived it. So, you know, if you look at, you know, we're, we're coming to the top of the hour in the show. What, what recommendations? You know, we have, we have companies in Africa, uh, companies in Indonesia, Malaysia, Australia, all over the world. And they have dreams. What kind of what can you tell them? You know, they and sometimes they have co-founders that don't treat them nicely, right? They do not so nice things. But yep. what can you tell them? I mean, you've had an incredible life. You've done incredible things. You know, what kind of words of wisdom would you give them? Well, that's a it's <laughs> a very broad question. I I think. Um, Technology is still young in so many ways. And there are many fields to innovate in. And there's a gigantic third world out there uh, that needs what we can come up with. And I'm, I don't know, I'm very Silicon Valley centric here, but um, there's a lot of innovation in so many fields and who would have ever thought that voice recognition would come so far so fast. Mm -hmm. I was super interested in voice recognition in the early 2000s and being a hardware guy, I was looking to make uh, phoneme recognition in hardware using big gate arrays. That's mm -hmm. what I thought was very exciting. But no, the, the software just blew past it. Anyway, um, I don't know. Per, my, grand, my grand vision is Internet of Things, mm -hmm. smart home area. Uh, what I think is that what Dell did for the PC clone business, nobody is doing that yet for smart homes. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you there. And these companies... The, the magic of the valley, I hear this every day. I know I talked to many, many, I've had seven calls with companies just today, prior to this call. And they believe in the dream of Silicon Valley. They believe that the opportunity exists. And, and I see hordes of them coming over here because of COVID. They got, you know, locked into their facilities. They right. couldn't travel. And they have the dream. And the magic, the magic of Silicon Valley does it exist today, Daniel, in your mind? And just for the audience out there, because oh. I hear it every day, like literally. Sure. No, but no. And it's I'm, thanks to Zoom, thanks to COVID. I was a person working, interested in working on two-way video, what we're doing right now. The very earliest, uh, what TV telephone, they were called video phones, right? That was in the mid 80s. Um, it took COVID to actually get Zoom uh, to 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 work reliably. And how did I mean Apple could have dominated that business? Cisco should have dominated that business. 
they kind of fumbled it. I don't know the reasons why Apple didn't um, get into video calling earlier, but uh, anyway, thanks to Zoom being working as well as it does. I mean, we're not even on Zoom. What we're on Streamyard? I've never even heard. Of yeah, What's that? Streamyard's really good when you're doing this these kind of broadcasting. It's a was a Canadian company founded right. in two. Anyway, the point is, uh, the world has gone distributed now. Mm -hmm. So Silicon Valley is a place to make connections for sure. Um, but uh, I don't know. I'm an ambassador for the startup embassy, which is the idea of group housing for entrepreneurs and uh, startupembassy.com. That's a great vision. Anyway, um, <clears throat> I don't know. We democratize the opportunity, right, Dandy? We. You know, the one thing that happened with COVID is we've democratized opportunity. And right. we say Silicon Valley is really a port to the rest of the world. And the port is there's access to capital. There's incredible talent there. Stanford University is located in the heart of Silicon Valley, right in that, uh, near uh, in Palo Alto. It's just in a different type of environment if people think differently, literally. Where else can you walk down the street in university and, you know, you see Tim Cook, you go down a little bit further and, and you're meeting with a venture capitalist and people are open to talk to you. It's like access and people aren't afraid to help, just like you're here today. But for it's, all of you out there, you know, it's, it's the like uh, it's like Florence in the Renaissance. It is like Florence in the Renaissance. And, you know, the great thing is, I believe and I don't know about you, but I see a lot of companies every single day from all over the world. They have incredible technologies from Nigeria FinTech right? South Africa, Indonesia, Malaysia, Vietnam, incredible technologies. And they dream of coming to Silicon Valley because there are people like you, Daniel, that there that have incredible knowledge to be able to help them guide, guide them to the future. And it's a, it is a miracle. It's magical. And for all the startups that are out there, you know, there are people like Daniel that have really made the dent in the universe, literally. You all have the opportunity to make the dent in the universe. You all have a chance to be able to change your destiny. The difference is you've got to want to do it. You may not understand uh, programming or programming chips. You may not have uh, the marketing expertise, but find people that are just out there that want to help you, that have those complementary skill sets. That's how you build a company. Daniel just said Wozniak was the brains behind building the Apple, the first Apple. Well, Steve Jobs knew a little bit about marketing. Find people that can complement your skills and go get it done because that's what it's all about. And it's, that's it's a very great. good point. And on the topic of innovation, of course, uh, timing is so important. If you're too early, it won't, it won't happen yet. Or if you're too late, that'll be obvious because there will be many competitors. No, I agree. And that's one of the things, if you, if you go up, the chain and you get the 60,000 foot view and you look down, if you, you're active, active, you can start to see where the trends are going to be and jump on them. Maybe you're not right all the time, but the idea is you find people like yourself that are there that can see those directions and that's where you need to move. So I want to say, Dan, we've, we've gone over a little bit today and I really appreciate your time because I know it's so precious and valuable. And to the audience out there, the young entrepreneurs, the venture capitalists, the investors from all over the world. You know, it, one of the reasons Silicon Valley is Silicon Valley because of people like Daniel that have made that dent and, and 
been involved with some of the most compelling and interesting companies in the world. So, Daniel, I want to thank you for taking your time out of your schedule to meet with us. Where's the best way if somebody wants to get a hold of you? What's the best way if a startup has any questions? Uh, LinkedIn. I don't know if uh, LinkedIn or is there any way a particular way that they can get a hold of you? LinkedIn is perfectly fine. I'm on Facebook also. I have an Instagram account, but I don't really use it. I have. I'm on Twitter. For the time being, I don't know. <laughs> we don't want to get into that. Another show. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, LinkedIn is probably best. LinkedIn. So reach out to Danny. Have questions. That's one thing about the Valley too. People are really open and they do want to help. Or so, Facebook Messenger works fine too. Facebook Messenger. Okay. Sounds great. So everybody out there, imagine uh, Daniel's got a lifetime worth of experiences and can share. Thanks, Daniel, again for your time. Thanks to all my audience again for taking one more time of GSD Presents Silicon Valley AI and Tech. And my I will just add, I could not figure out what GSD stood for, and you told me right at the beginning. <laughs> I, I like the name now. Well, thank, well, because it's all about the action, right? It's not about the talk. All about the action. That is what it's all about. So right. thanks, audience. Have a nice, for those in, in the U.S., have a nice rest of your Thanksgiving weekend. Enjoy yourself. Stay tuned again for next week on Tuesday. We're going to have another exciting edition. Thanks, Daniel. I appreciate your time. Pleasure chatting with you.